Okay, I'm going to talk today. It's a very unusual shear. In fact, you can go through your entire life and never hear this type of shear, this type of topic. <clears throat> Many people have asked, why did the Rabbanishim create Olam Hazeh, this world? Why not create a future world now or first? In other words, why, why do you have to create a world that is so much difficulty, you have to work for it, all the effort that you have to put into it and so on, in order to get the future world, which is Olam Habo, why doesn't God just create Olam Habo and that's it? What do you need Olam Hazeh? And therefore, if you don't have Olam Hazeh, which is this world, then you don't have all the suffering, you don't have the problems, you don't have the redemption. You don't need a redemption if it's the future world, right? So that is the question. Why is there an Olam Hazeh, this world? That's a very, very important question. Many people have asked that. And really, you can go through your whole life and never hear an answer, which is really very, very interesting. And the truth is, most people don't have an answer, you know. But there is an answer, and I'd like to go through that, uh, which really, in many ways, is very important to understand because it reveals tremendous amounts of human nature and what God really wants and what the nature of the neshama is, you see. Um, so, so in many ways, it's really very important, you see. Now, in order to answer that question, we know that God has many attributes, characteristics. One of them is that the Rabboni Shalom, God, is a toiv and a mative. That God is good, but more important, because doing good, being good, is doing good. God does good. He always does good. That is his essential attribute or characteristic. That's his nature, to do good, you see. But what's interesting also is not only that God does good, what the good that God does is shlemo, it's perfect. Since God is perfect, obviously everything that he does is also perfect. So when God does good, it is the greatest possible good that can be done. And therefore it's called Hatovish Perfect goodness. That's a very important idea. Therefore, when you think about this world, it's perfectly good. In this sense, the fact that we have Oilam this world, as a precursor to Oilam Habo, the future world, that has to fall under the characteristic called perfect goodness. In fact, we see that because it says in the Gemara, the Tav of it, everything that God does is only for the good. That's right. Even though we don't really understand, you see. And that's why it says in the Gemara and Brochus, that just like you bless God for good things, you also bless him 
right, for things which are very bad or difficult, you see, because that's also, you, you have to bless him, because even though to us it appears to be very bad, but to him it is perfect goodness. And that's also where the famous statement is, this too is for the good. Now, we do not understand, we certainly cannot perceive many things, why they are good. But that is on purpose, because one of the most important mitzvahs is called bitochen, is to trust in God. And to trust in God means that whatever he does can only be for the good. It is never evil, even if it appears to be bad. You see, in fact, it says in the Torah, that God will do good in your end. So that's a very important idea, that God is toif, good, which essentially means that he does good. And it's a perfect good. And everything he does can be categorized as goodness. Now, Imagine I'm going to give you a scenario. Remember, I'm trying to answer this question. Why did God make this world? Why didn't he make the future world immediately? Why wait? Because we've got to wait until this world is over, and then we get the future world. So the question is, why did he do it? Now, imagine if God would appear to you at night, right? And that would be a basically prophecy. And he said to you, I'm going to, because you did a certain good deed, whatever that is, I'm going to give you a wish, whatever you want. Can you imagine that? He would give you a wish. And therefore, you can choose. It's up to you what you want. And whatever you want, he will grant you. It's like the genie in the bottle, right? You know, where if you free him, he will grant you a wish. Of course, God is not a genie, God forbid. But imagine if that happened to you. And it really did happen to Shlomo HaMelech. When Shlomo HaMelech, you know, became king, he came to him in a dream and said, what would you like? But there he gave him a choice. Do you want wisdom or do you want wealth? So Shlomo HaMelech said, I want wisdom. So God said that itself was a very wise answer. So I'm going to give you both. But God actually did that to Shlomo Melech, you see. So that's the question. Now, you know, whatever each one of you thinks, you know, you can ask yourself, well, what would I ask? You have one wish, right? What would I ask God? Now, everybody's got different choices. Some people want wealth, right? Some people want, you know, a long life, no pain, right? No suffering, you know. Uh, everybody's got a different wish. But remember, God can grant any wish, right? So you don't want to waste it. So what would you wish? And you know what the answer is, as far as I'm concerned? My wish would be to be God. Yes. I would love to be a God. You see? If I was God, then I would, I would enjoy His characteristics. God has no dependencies. God is not dependent on anything outside of himself. You see, he's not dependent on anything 
for his existence at all. He is a self-existent entity. Second thing, God can do anything, right? He's omnipotent. Could you imagine a being that can do whatever he wishes? And again, the third thing is no limitations. There are absolutely no limits or restrictions on what he can do. He can do whatever he desires to do. You see, that's incredible. No dependencies, no limitations, right? Completely powerful, all potency, uh, omnipotent. And of course, we know he's eternal. So guess what? That's what I would love to do. I would love to ask. Make me a god. Okay? Now, you know, a person could say, well, that's a tall order, you know? Can God do that? And the answer is, in a certain sense, no. Because one day I will give a shi about that. There's only one being that can be God, and that's God. In other words, a being that has the nature of God cannot be duplicated, cannot be copied at all. And I'm not going to explain why. So therefore, obviously God cannot make me a God. But he can make me divine. And that's exactly what he did. What the Varsham did is very interesting. He made mankind, especially the Jewish people, of a divine nature. Now how does he do that? Here's what he does. Now the Varsham in of himself, whoever he is, is completely unknown for many reasons. But the upshot of all this is that he is an unknown, incomprehensible being. There is nothing, nobody, in entire creation that has an inkling of who he is, what he is, what he can do. I don't care who he is. The greatest Malach has absolutely no idea of who God is, you see. Therefore, what God does is he creates a Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is a created entity, you see. What God does is create a certain type of presence, which is a divine presence, that represents him. That's really what he creates. The Shekhinah is a representation of God. It's a certain presence, you see. That's what the Shekhinah is. That's why we say, We say, which is God, what's called in whoever, in whatever he is, you see. And and his Shekhinah. What the Shekhinah is, is the some type of a entity that represents God. We have no concept even of what that is. But the Shekhinah represents God. You see. That, that's, no, it's, it's God, how he appears to us, and how he relates to us. Because God in whoever he really is, whatever he really is, cannot relate to anything, you see, without going into why. So what he does, because we, we cannot in any way know who he is, so how does he relate to us? 
So therefore he creates some type, like I said, representation, and that is called the Shekhinah. And we relate to the Shekhinah, you see. <clears throat> In a certain sense, it's like, um, you know, a king, you know, who has an ambassador. So you can relate to the king through the ambassador, you see. Or, maybe another way of explaining it, is imagine you go into a throne room, right? You go into a throne room, and to see the king, you have an audience with the king. And you go to the throne, and you look at the throne, and you see something very strange. You see a suit, or let's say a robe, right? And something is in the robe, but it's invisible, you see. And from the robe, and, and where the head would be, right? Something is talking to you, but it's an invisible being. But you do see the robe, you see? So the reality of whoever's talking to you is in the form of a robe. But you never get to see the king himself. Same thing. When we talk to God, right, we don't see him. There's no way we can really uh, observe him. But then how do we connect him? And the answer is, through the garment of God. And that is the Shekhinah. So you can look at it that way. In any case, that's what he did. Now, what he then did, is he took an aspect of the Shekhinah itself, and he created an entity called the Neshama, which is incredible. Therefore, the Neshama is really part of the Shekhinah. You see, we know this because it says that the Neshama is a part of God above. And as Rab Chaim Volozhin says in the Nevesh mamish. the Neshama in some way which we have no concept of is part of the fabric of the Shekhinah itself. Except, so initially, that's where it comes from, you see. And then what God did is he split the neshama from the shechina. It's like a coin. A coin has head and tails, right? But it's one coin. But there are two sides, you see. So what the Bershom did, so the, the head itself is the shechina, that side of the coin. <clears throat> and the other side of the coin, which is the tails, right? That is the Neshama. And what the Bansham did is he, he individuated, he made individual the Neshama from the Shrina. You see. <clears throat> so what comes out of this is that the Neshama of a Jew is divine. We see that. We see that, in, for instance, in the third chapter, uh, I should say the third, on the third day of the Yom, uh, we read uh, a film, and it says there, you are God, or you are divine. In many places in Tillam we see that. And that's what it means. That the Neshama is like an entity that no other entity can copy or replicate. The Neshama is actually in some way, and we do not know how, not yet anyway, somehow, the Neshama is part of the Shekhinah. And the Shekhinah, we know, represents God. That's how great the Neshama is. In fact, 
the greatest entities ever created is the Shechina and the Neshama, which is the other side of the Shechina. You see. <clears throat> In other words, what we begin to understand, therefore, is that God is in us. We emerge, or we emanate from God. We emanate from the Shechina, because to that, that is the presence or representation of God. So God is in us. He's not around us, so to speak, but somehow we emanate from Him. But we are not Him. Do not think just because He is in us that we are Him. No, we are not God. But we clearly see that He is in us. That's a very important concept. And that becomes incredibly important when you begin to realize what we begin to see in the future world. You see. Uh, but anyway, just, uh, just might as well add this, that what God did is He took the Neshama, and like I said, He split it from the Shechina. He individuated it. And then He took the Neshama that was split or separate from the Shechina, and he split that into millions of pieces. Each one is an Ishoma, a spark, and he put in each one of the, these things consciousness. So all of a sudden, all these sparks from the grand Ishoma, so to speak, have individual consciousnesses. So in that way, he made people. And then just as the last idea, he took each individual Ishoma, spark, and he split that, and he created one part of that. He created a man, a Zohar, and the other part was in a Kiva. You see? Oh, so there you have it. You have the Shechina, which is divine, the Neshama, which is the flip side of that, and that has been split into three parts. You see? Uh, and the last part is Zohar and the Kiva, and now we begin to understand why when a person gets married, what the outcome is, it's, it's a reunification in many ways of a divine being. But anyway, without getting into that. Okay, and f- in fact, uh, the interesting remnants of that, right, is even the word Ish and Isha. You know, Ish is Aleph Yud Shin, and Isha is Aleph Shin Hey, right? The middle letter, or, or rather the, the, each one has the word Ish, fire, which is the spark of the neshama, like a spark from fire. But the other two letters, in ish there's a yud, and in isha there's a hey, yud k, which is the name of God. Ah, so that's what we see. An ish and an isha is a tremendous spark, and both of them have embedded in themselves the divine presence. You see, the yud and the k. In any case, uh, those are the letters. Now, we now understand something very important, that the Neshama and the Shekhinah are the two greatest entities ever made. By the way, that's why Bereshus begins with a base to indicate that there are really only two beings that are the essential beings. One is the Shekhinah, which represents God, and, and the second one is the Neshama, which represents what's called the Zulosoi. Now, anyway, the other, or being which is independent of the Shekhinah. Uh, 
we have now enough information to begin to understand why God made Olam Habo, or rather Olam Hazer. Because what happens now is there is a tremendous problem. What is that problem? The Neshama now experiences a tremendous sense of shame. Yes. That's called Nahamadi Kisufa, bread of shame. Why? <clears throat> what is shame? Shame is an emotion. We have to understand what shame is. Let's see. Shame is an emotion that a person experiences when, <clears throat> when, when, a, a, when what's exposed in the person, a sense or an understanding of his inferiority or vulnerability, he's ashamed. I'll give you an example. Imagine a guy goes to a gym, right? And you go to a gym because you want to improve, you know, your physical being and so on, you know, how you look, your appearance and so on, right? And as he's walking in the gym, the gym has mirrors all over. You know, he sees himself in the mirror and he takes a look at his body and believe me, it's nothing to admire. That's probably why he's in the gym. And all of a sudden he gets embarrassed. Why? Because he, he's looking at the tremendous inferiority or vulnerability of his body. So what that does, it produces a concept of shame. You see? Now, shame is a very destructive, very dangerous emotion. You see? <clears throat> because when you feel shame, you are in contact with your sense of inferiority. You see? And that's why you always have to be careful. In many ways, um, the, the two, just as an aside, the two fundamental negative emotions that are very, very damaging to a person and which in many ways is responsible for a great deal of emotional uh, dysfunction or, 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 or uh, uh, sickness or whatever <clears throat> is the concept of inferiority where a person loses a sense of self-worth, self-esteem, you see? And also, what accompanies that is always shame, you see? And people walk around with this tremendous sense of shame, and of course, everybody wants to avoid that because it is a terrible feeling. That's what happens many times if a parent criticizes a child, abuses a child, and that he's always criticizing his child, or he's very judgmental on his child, but that child begins to feel shame because it begins to feel that there's something wrong with it, you see? And he develops this tremendous sense of shame. And with the shame, because he's now experiences, experiencing his inferiority or his vulnerability, this is being exposed because his parent is always criticizing and judging him and so on. That's a classic example of why many people develop, you know, uh, all kinds of emotional problems and so on. It's a very destructive and very damaging emotion. That's what shame is. Now, the neshama has this shame. Why? Because it's an interesting contradiction, you see. What is a contradiction? That the neshama on one hand is a nivra, 
It's a created entity. Because God created it. It didn't exist before God created it. Only God exists eternally. The Neshama had to be created. But it's also a divine being. Like I said, it's called a Nimsa. It is. Since it is a part of the Shechina, it's a Chelech Lekaimimah, it is part of a divine being, the Shechina, and therefore it feels divine, you see. So what that does, that produces what's called an existential paradox. One side of it feels, well, I'm part, I'm, I have a divine nature, you see. And the other part feels the vulnerability, the inferiority, that, well, what do you mean, I don't have the divine nature, I'm a created entity. And if I'm a created entity, obviously, I'm totally dependent on God for my existing existence. As I mentioned, God is, is what? Is uh, his, his characteristics, right? Is that God is a completely independent being. And he has no limitations, right? And he's uh, omnipotent. Well, if the Nishoma is a Nivra, right, then automatically it has the sense or the experience or the feelings, right, that it has, uh, that, it, that it is divine, as I said, but it experiences the fact that it's a created entity. And therefore, it's always feeling this dependency. You see, that paradox or contradiction in what it is, is Nahamadik Sufa, is the bread of shame. The Gemara uses that term, bread of shame. In what context? That if somebody gives you bread and you have done nothing to earn it, right, then you will feel shamed. Why? Because that is clear proof that you are dependent on somebody else for bread. That's what Nahamadik Sufa is, bread of shame. It is the bread that produces shame in you when you receive it, you see. Uh, therefore, when a person is in, uh, receives tremendous amount of good and it does nothing to deserve it, to create it or to cause it or to be responsible for it, then automatically that person begins to feel shame. Yeah, a person can overcome that and ignore it. But ultimately, per, uh, what that means to the person that he is an inferior being. That's what happens when a person is on welfare his entire life. Because he's always receiving, and he does nothing to deserve it, you see. So after a while, even though he can overcome that feeling, but what he does feel is shame. Because he's always receiving something for nothing. And therefore, the self-worth of that person is tremendously challenged and contradicted. And that's the problem with the Neshama. If the Rabbi Shalom, you see, had created the Neshama, Oilem Habo first, and only Oilem Habo, which is the future world, then he would take and put the Neshama in the future world, right? But the problem is, since the Neshama has a divine nature, right? But it also is a created entity, and therefore is dependent on something else for its existence it would always have this sense of inferiority. Now, could you imagine? It's experiencing this incredible 
you know, uh, divine presence, an unbelievable uh, state of pleasure, bliss in the future world, but it does nothing to deserve it. Nothing. It is not a cause of this. It is not responsible for this. It's on the receiver end. Then automatically it would experience, while it's experienced the, the pleasure of being attached to God, it is experiencing this incredible dependency and therefore in, uh, inferiority, and that is Namadik Sufa. That, that means the Neshama would be eternally in a state of shame, which is terrible. So even though God is, is bestowing on this Neshama a tremendous infinite bliss, right? It is constantly feeling the shame or the dependency on receiving this from God because it has done nothing to cause it. It's always on the receiver end. Therefore, God has to remove this. It's called the Tikkun of Namdik Sufa. He needs to remove the sense of shame or inferiority that the Neshama will feel so it can feel as if it not only is divine, that it's truly divine. But how does he do that? So what the Bajram does is very interesting. He allows the Neshama to have Bechira. What is Bechira? We know Bechira is called free will. But what Bechira really is, we, we don't really know how it works. But in, in a certain sense, Bechira is when a being can truly cause something that is not from God. You see, what does that mean? When a person has free will, it means that a decision to act is truly created or formed by the person himself. And it is not implanted or put there by God. Uh, therefore, even though the ability of the person to do something, of course, is, is allowed by God, and he obviously does it for the person, right? However, the decision to do that act is not God's. It is the person's. Therefore, what that does is it makes the person a true cause of the act. Even though the act itself, when it's implemented, is because of God, because God allows the person to exist and do the act, but in some way which we do not understand, a person, when he makes a decision through free will, he becomes a true cause. Now, a true cause is a divine act. Because only God can cause. Nothing can cause. Everything is acted upon. Because everything in creation is dependent on God for its existence. From nanosecond to nanosecond. But in some way which we do not understand, God created the phenomenon of Bechira, free will. And he gave it to the Neshama. And the Neshama is able to choose freely what it wants to do. It can decide. And then, of course, the implementation of that decision, right, or the realization, is then done by God. But the decision is the Neshama's. Therefore, the Neshama has now done a divine act. And therefore, it feels divine, you see. Now, what God has done, of course, 
is that's why he has created the Olam Hazeh, this world. And he has given the Neshama Mitzvahs, commandments, you see. So what happens is, is that the Neshama actually does the Mitzvah. But when it does the Mitzvah, it is the true cause of its having done the Mitzvah. God did not put into the mind of the person to do that mitzvah. In some way which we do not understand, that person created the actual desire and wish, Ratzin, to do the mitzvah. That is Bechira, free will, but it's a divine act because the Neshama did it by itself. Like I say, we don't know how it works. But what it does do, it makes the Neshama fully responsible for what it does because if it hadn't decided to do it obviously it would not have been done so if it was done it's because the neshama the person had free will and he is truly responsible you see and a true cause for that act that's a very important concept why because now in Ulam Habo in the future world right Everything that the Neshama will now experience in the future world is totally determined by what it did in the Oilam Hazer, in the, this world, you see. <clears throat> in fact, the total responsibility of the status, the cause of the status of the Neshama, is its own cause. It did it. Anything the person does, it is now given that incredible state. It's a complete equation, uh, equality. A person cannot have anything more than what he caused during this world, Ulam Hazer. That's what he experiences in Ulam Habor. Therefore, because the Neshama, you see, is in Ulam Habor and is only getting what it actually created, that is a divine act. Therefore, even though it's receiving the, the bliss and the pleasure from God, since the whole reason why it's there in the first place, in the future world, and the whole, the measure of quantity of the bliss is totally caused by the Neshama, even if in fact God is giving it to the Neshama, removes Nahamadik Sufa. It removes the concept of bread of shame. Very important concept. In other words, so that's the idea uh, that the neshama has to be in the future world. And the definition or the experience of the future world is what? Is infinite bliss eternally. It cannot be associated with any type of shame. Or, like bread of shame, it cannot be associated with that feeling that it has done nothing to deserve this, Right? And therefore, it is not divine. It has to be able to experience divinity, true divinity. And that's what free will allows it to experience. Therefore, we see this is the greatest hatava. This is the greatest goodness that God can do by giving it its maximum. So even though the neshama obviously is dependent on God, right, for, the, for the, uh, what it experiences, the Neshama is the true cause of what it is experiencing. And when it does that, it is truly a divine being, and therefore in no way does it feel shame or any sense 
of inferiority because it has replicated, duplicated the act of a divine being, you see. And that's very important to understand. That is why when God judges a person, it must be with strict din, strict judgment. Because if any part of that judgment or any part of that ulam habo that this person will receive is not caused by it, then it will experience inferiority or shame. Uh, therefore, whatever a person receives in ulam habo, the future world, must be earned and caused by the neshama in this world. There is no vitur where God says, well, I'm going to give you this, and you know, and even though you never caused it. You see, because only strict judgment will remove nahamadik sufa. <clears throat> now, there are ways, of course, causing. Even if a person doesn't do the mitzvahs, for instance, <coughs> and he does sins. But when a person is punished, right, then he was punished. And therefore, that punishment is also allows him to cause the erasing of that sin, you see? And if the sin is erased, of course, then he, ex- he can experience Oilam Abba, the future world, in a total way, you see? Because he doesn't have any impediment caused by the sin. But his erasing that sin, right, Kapora, atonement, he caused because he suffered, you see? Even though the suffering was given to him, but he went through it. He experienced the suffering, and that is a real thing. And therefore, the Oilam Haba that he receives really is a total, it can be totally attributed to the Neshama. And that is how the Rabbanashram removes Namrik Sufa. And we now understand why God had to create this world first and Oilam Haba second. In other words, if it wasn't for Namrik Sufa, if it wasn't for the, the contradiction that the Neshama has in its own being, right, then you wouldn't need Oilam Hazer. Interesting. And if God did not want to create the Neshama as a divine being, you also wouldn't need this world. You see? Then it can go straight to Oilam Haba. But since God wanted to give it the nature of a divine being, you see, then he has to remove the concept of Namadik Sufa, the inferiority or the contradiction in the existence of the Neshama itself. How can you be a divine being, right, yet be on the receiving end for eternity, totally dependent on God, and having done nothing that you could say was your responsibility? And that is why we have Ilam Hazreh, this world, you see. <clears throat> now, what's interesting, it's Sadiqam. Now, because God knew, which is interesting, that you know you you need some type of a uh, some type of a assistance to mankind because many people will not do mitzvahs, you see. So therefore, God interjected in this world on this hanhaga actions, many actions of mercy, compassion, rachmonus, where in certain ways He suspends the judgment. If He didn't, then mankind could not survive, which is interesting. So, to the extent that God forgoes justice and executes mercy, that is a slight amount of Namadik Sufa. 
You see? Because then the Neshama hasn't done it strictly by itself. He has happened and assist by God. That is why many tzaddikim, they don't want any mercy from God. They want to get exactly what they did. You see? That's what it says. That God exacts judgment on a tzaddik. Kechuta sairo. Like, like a, a his breath of justice. Means there's not even a deviation of a his breath of justice by a tzaddik. Because a tzaddik doesn't want any assist. He doesn't want any mercy, really. He wants, to, he wants his oilam haba to be completely caused by him and not because of any kind of you know, deviation from justice by God. He doesn't want that. But for everybody else, you know, most people are obviously not tzaddikim, they need the assistance of God. They need God to, for, to in some way to, uh, you know, forestall uh, justice and act with compassion, or else they'll never survive. So in a certain sense, there probably is a certain amount of namdik sufa, you see. But God will make that up through suffering and so on. In the end, that is the critical part, to remove the inferiority that the neshama will experience while it's experiencing infinite bliss eternally, God must remove that sense of inferiority that the neshama will have as a result of its true nature as a divine being. In any case, this is the idea of why there is a present world and why it is in many ways difficult, why we have to work, because in the end, God wants each one of us to be the true cause, to be totally responsible for what we will get in the future world. In any case, this is what God has done, and ultimately it is a rectification of the bread of shame. Any questions? No questions? Amy, ask a question. Amy? I don't have any questions. I have a question. Have I been totally clear? Yes, Yes. I have a question. Good. Then if Hashem wanted um, the Nishama not to have shame, so that's why he created Olam Hazeh. Yes. Why made the Nishama feel shame to begin with? <clears throat> the ultimate answer, it's a very good question, uh, the ultimate answer to that is unknown. We don't know why. Your question is a very good question. You know, because everything the Nishama experiences is all created. Before the creation, there's no such thing as a Shekhinah. There's no such thing as a Nishama. And guess what? There's no such thing as shame. All of it has to be created. So the question is, well, create a Shekhinah, create a Neshama, right? And a divinity of the Neshama. But don't create the capacity or the concept, the existential concept of shame. That ultimately is unknown. We don't know. What I'm just saying is that now that shame exists, 
therefore it has to be rectified. And the way it's rectified by Tikkun is because of Olam Hazer. But your question is a fundamental question that in the end has no answer. I mean, it doesn't have an It has an answer, which we will know probably in the Messianic era. But it's interesting that no, no uh, to my knowledge, no Mephoshim deal with that concept. You know, it's like what they say, you know, if it's not, why do you have to fix it? If it's not, bro- if it's not broken, then you don't have to fix it. You know what I'm saying? Which is basically what you're saying. Right. But nobody knows why. Why God felt the necessity to create that feeling, right, or that contradiction. And therefore, he would have to go about correcting it. That is unknown. We can only work from the, 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 the logic of, well, the Nisham is divine, and uh, the fact that it's a created entity automatically exposes it to its inferiority, because it's obviously that part of it is not divine. Yet the fact that it's part of the Shekhinah is divine. So it's walking around, so to speak, with that sense, that paradox. It needs to be resolved. So the way it's resolved is by making it a true cause, which is the whole concept of free will, and by giving it a task, right? Which means that it enables the Nishama to, act, to actualize its free will. You see? And in Oilem Habo, what it will experience is a complete outcome of its free will. But why God made that in the first place, that is unknown. So, Great question. Rabbi, I have another question. Sure. When, so Hashem um, created the Shekhinah as, um, it's like an entity of, to represent Him. Yes. Uh, but we always pray for the unification of the Kuchabarichu and the Shekhinah. So yes. One is Hashem and one is the Shekhinah. When they do have the unification, what happens? <clears throat> well, the interesting thing about that is that the, if we look at the Shekhinah as the different revelations of God, you know, it's like you look at something through, um, let's say, one lens, or you can look at something through many lenses, you see, the more lenses you look through to see something, the, 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 the more obscure it becomes. The Shekhinah itself is a view of God, but not the Atzmusai. We do not see God in who He truly is. We see Him, how He wants to reveal Himself, and that is the Shekhinah. But the view that we have of God looking at the Shekhinah or being connected to the Shekhinah is infinite. There are infinite levels of attachment and therefore observations, if you want to use that word, of God. Each observation or each experience that we have is beyond comprehension. It is what takes place in Olam Habo. Uh, so Olam Habo basically <coughs> is an upward mobile <coughs> is an upward progression of experiencing the Shekhinah, which means experiencing greater and greater levels of divinity. (coughs) You see. So in the end, what we experience is Shekhinah. 
we never experience Kutsubrihu. Because that is unexperienceable, if you can use that word, you know. Uh, there is no bridge to that. We can only experience an attachment <coughs> to the Shekhinah, which is a Nivra, which is a created entity, which represents God in that sense. See? And that itself is Ainsayf. That itself is infinite. And therefore, the future world, Oilam Abba, is infinite. You see? So I wouldn't worry about the fact that Shina is not Kuchibrihu. You see? So my question now is, okay, so you said <coughs> the flip side of the Shina is a Nishama, right? The flip side of the coin. And then yes. the Nishama splits into sparks, and then eventually the sparks split into Zachar Nekeva, and that's <coughs> where you have um, a marriage between a husband and wife. They're the same spark of one Nishama. So yes. is that why, is that why, because in some of the prayers before a woman goes to the mikveh um, uh, on the seventeenth day, um, it brings up in the in the in the prayer the unification of the shchinta and the kuchabericho. So is that why it brings that unification up because you're unifying the soul, which is really part of the shechinah, which is really uh, whatever it goes back to Hashem. Yes, yeah. The <coughs> Because <clears throat> the the ultimate unification is when the woman goes to the mikveh. That is the ultimate un, uh, the outcome of that is to allow the ultimate unification between a man and his wife. And therefore, what it is is there's a reunification of tunishamot, which are really part and parcel of the same what's called patsuf. The man represents six firot. Chesed, Gvurot, first, Netzachod, Yisoyed, and the woman represents Malchus. Because we are really a composite of the Sfirot. In any case, <clears throat> so therefore that is a reunification of the Neshama at the third level, the third split. But when that happens, then that increases or furthers or advances the entire unification of the Grand Neshama it's like if you have, you know, millions of splits, even if only two of them get together, but that is part and parcel, uh, you know, of the totality of all the, unif- of all the fragments to reunify. <clears throat> you see, that's why in many ways it's called Kiddushan. Kodesh, holy. You know, a man marrying a woman, you know, isn't, uh, isn't a matter of a relationship where, you know, they, 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 they live together in the same house. No. <clears throat> On a spiritual level, it is beyond belief unification toward unifying the Shrina. And that's ultimately what God wants, is where Knesset Israel, and that's the Grand Neshama, ultimately will unify with the Shrina itself. And the Shrina, of course, is how we relate to God. That is who we connect to which in essence is connecting to God, uh, you see. So that's why all of this, in some way, uh, is, uh, is uh, connected to the whole concept of Kedusha, of holiness, you see. So I have a random question. Let's say someone gets married, uh, yeah. and then they get divorced, and they get remarried. 
their Nikon mask split twice? Well, what's interesting is that <clears throat> the the neshamot can be connected to different. There's what's called the essential spouse, right? And then there's the peripheral spouses. One neshama can be connected to many neshamas, but there's one that essentially belongs, and there's other that in some way uh, they can trade shefa. In other words, there are interactions between neshamot. And marriage can uh, can express that, you see. But a person does have one essential zivug. How know? do you know which one you married? How do you know which one you married? Well, you know, in a, in a certain sense, uh, you really don't. You know, some people say, you know, if you really, really love, you know, uh, that the person that you're married to. Uh, you know, a tremendous abiding and deep love, uh, maybe that's an indicator that that's your essential one. But whatever it is, whoever you're married to, is very important to rectify a part of your neshama, or else it would never happen. Each marriage, in some way, adds something to the neshama, and they're all necessary. Look, in the olden days, right, forget about it, a guy got divorced, a woman got divorced, a guy could marry five wives, a hundred wives, right? So, so who's the real zivug? Uh, you know, well, there's, a, there's an essential zivug, but then all of them are part of, in some way, reunifying, uh, you know, and uh, to ultimately unify with the Shechina. It's an incredibly complex operation that we have absolutely no inkling of. <clears throat> But it's an essential idea. <clears throat> it is the essential outcome of man's actions, you know, of the human race. Is we all souls ultimately unify, Jewish souls unify, and then they can rejoin the Shekhinah. Because that's really what God wants. But the how it works and why it works and who you're married to is enormously complicated. And it's based on, you know, what each neshama has to do to ultimately find its status, its position in the grand scale of all the neshamot with the shechina. You see. Amazing. Okay, so now let's tie this back to Mashiach. Why not? So when, um, so for the pekida. <clears throat> We said that the Yisod has to go into the Mahu, and that's when the Shekhinah is released from its klipa, and it essentially goes back to reunite with Hashem. <clears throat> yes. Well, what, like, I, like I once said, uh, whatever, uh, the first stage is where the sphere of Yisod, which is, uh, I once gave the example, I think last year I gave what they forced it, you know, uh, where all the all the or the uh, divine light uh, goes from Yisoid, right, which is like the faucet, into the vessel, which is Malchus, right, and that releases the what I told you was the Yechida, <coughs> the soul of Odomarishan. Now Odomarishan, like I said, he had five parts. Right, five parts of the neshama. But what's interesting is that he had the totality of all neshamot. 
And therefore, as a result of that, uh, when Adam sinned, he sinned, his yechida, his fifth part, which is the highest, flew off before it became contaminated with the sin. That has to return. And that, that aspect of his neshama, Adam Rishman, was never contaminated. It's pure. And it has absolutely no, uh, no stigma of any kind of sin. That is the, that neshama, or aspect of him, is a composite, is the totality of all the yechidot of man, of Jews, all of them. Uh, that means mine and yours and your husband's and all them and so on. All of our yechidot are bundled together in the yechid of Odom Rishon. That yechidot now, when the pekidah happens, now one half of it goes to Mashiach ben Yosef. The other half goes to Mashiach ben David. That is why the Mashiach, you see, since he has half the bundle of the totality of all Jews that ever lived, that's what gives him the crown, that's the, the messianic crown, and that's what gives him the insights that he has. Because the Yechid of Adam, which is the totality of Yechid of all Jews, is the part of the Neshama that connects to the Shekhinah. You see? <clears throat> That's the part. It's like, it's like a series of five sections. The highest section, which is the Yechida, right? That's what connects to the Shekhinah. And that's why it's called Yechida, because it's unique. You see? In any case, that's what gives the power to Mashiach ben Yosef, whoever he will be, in order to connect to the Shekhinah. And that's what gives him the unbelievable spiritual stature that he will have, which I once mentioned. He's greater than Avram Avinu. He's greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. <clears throat> right? And he's greater than the Malachim. Why? Because he is connected to the Shekhinah, which is what I just told you. And that's, he's the, because that Yechida is the connecting link, right, of all Jews to the Shekhinah. And that's what the Mashiach ben Yosef has. And therefore, that's what gives him such an unbelievable stature in Ruchnias. You see. So, that's what the Pekita does. It allows the Yechid of Odomarishan, which is the composite of half the Yechid of all Jews. And like I say, the other half goes to the Mashiach ben David. <clears throat> that's what gives him this unbelievable spiritual stature. That's how he's able to do what he does. Without the Yechida, <clears throat> then whoever is the Mashiach ben Yosef I should, uh, cannot be Mashiach. Then he only has, you know, his Chalokim, his parts of the Neshama, which is Yosef Atzadik in the case of Mashiach ben Yosef, and him, himself, which I once explained a long time ago. <clears throat> you see, he cannot be Mashiach. So really, in the end, we are looking at unifications. That's really what we are. The essential phenomenon that has been created, or rather has been done, is separation, period. Like I just told you, the splits. When those splits are completed, which is the tikkun of the entire, 
called the Tikkun Akloli, the general ref, general rectification of the world, then you have the Yechida, right, coming to uh, to Mashiach Ben Yosef. But that can only come when Yisoyed is no longer blocked, you see, because Yisoyed is blocked. It cannot pour into Malchus. There's a great deal of Yisoyed is being uh, taken by the Sutton. He is being unique. He is nourishing from the Yisoyed, from the sphere of Yisoyed. And therefore, the full complement of the Yisoyed is not going into Malchus. So what happens is, is that that is now over because the Jews will have taken away, and that's really what we're doing. He will have taken every ounce of the Yisoyed, all the sparks of holiness that Yisoyed emits, they will have taken that away, they will have restored it, you see, back into Yisoyed, and then Yisoyed will then, uh, you know, uh, as a conduit, filter, uh, you know, uh, pour it into Malchus. <clears throat> and the result of that, of course, is that this Yechida now crowns Mashiach ben Yosef. So that's really what we're looking for. The reunification of the Jewish people, all the Nishamas, to reunify with the Shrina, you see. And that can only happen basically when the Sultan has finished uh, doing what he does. And I contend that 99% of the Sultan is, is gone. 99% of his power, of his force, is gone. And that is why we are watching <clears throat> the destruction of civilization. That's really what we're watching. It's not that the world is committing sins. No. Much worse. They are destroying the ability of man to survive in this world. You see. And this is what happened. You know, uh, under uh, Biden, America, America is being destroyed before our eyes with tremendous speed. <clears throat> when you think about all the irrationalities, you know, defund the police, which is irrational. No bail, that's irrational. You know, <clears throat> that you can go in San Francisco, which you just mentioned, everybody can go there and steal, and there's no, there's no incarceration or, or judgment. That's irrational. Are they crazy? You know, and then you talk about gender distortions, you know, <clears throat> where people can choose whatever gender they decide, what well, they crazy, right? And then if you say something, right? If you say something against what's happening today, uh, they're coming after you. The media will come after you, right? The progressives, the liberals, the Democratic Party. We are watching insanity. That's what we're watching. We've never seen this before. You see, and that's because the Sultan is dying and he's desperately trying to, in certain ways, bring back all the evil he can. And hopefully what he wants to try to accomplish is to influence Jews to sin. I mean, that's all he cares about. He's not interested in the Goyim sinning because they don't add to his his uh, ability to be unique, to nourish from, from holiness, from the energy of the spheres. The only one 
who can do that for him are the Jews. So he's hoping to destroy mankind, right? To so influence the environment that Jews will sin also. And that's exactly what's happening. I mean, there was a uh, LGBTQ gay pride parade in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Somebody told me over 100,000 Jews, I mean 100,000 people, were there. And somebody told me that, that uh, to, to his everlasting shame, I think Lapid allows now the flag of these people, the rainbow fly, flag of LGBTQ, to fly with the flags in the Knesset. <clears throat> That's what the Sutton wants. You're looking at it. He wants to destroy Jews and try to get as much Yenuka or Yenika, as much nourishment as he can from the spheres. So therefore, he is corrupting the world so that they will corrupt the Jews. You see? And then he can eat. That's the game plan. That's what you're looking at. And it's happening today with unbelievable speed. Unbelievable speed. But he can only do that, like I say, you know, as long as he has kitrugim, as long as he has prosecutions. And unfortunately, that's what he has. But there will come a time when his prosecutions will run out and God will say enough is enough, right? And he will destroy. We don't even know how. He's going to put a stop to this. And when he does, you will not even believe the stop that God does. Just think about Egypt. God turned over the world to destroy Egypt. That's basically what's going to happen to America and to the entire world. And with that, of course, is the entry of Mashiach. Um, is the speed an indicator of anything? Yes. It indicates that we got a sick and tired. I hate to use that expression. God is sick and tired of what people are doing, and he wants to accelerate the process. That's what we're looking at. We are looking at the acceleration of the redemption.